Good morning. Yes. Pardon me. I think it'll be up again Easter tide. All Easter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The, all of the feastings that we do are particular. They're particulars. Yeah. There's. Yes. There's there's method there's method to all the madness. Yeah. Okay. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Remember, O Lord, the souls of those who have kept the faith, both those whom we remember and those whom we remember not, and grant them rest in the land of the living, in the joy of paradise, whence all pain and grief have fled away, where the light of your countenance shines forever. And guide in peace, O Lord, the end of our lives, so as to be Christian and well-pleasing to you. Gather us around your throne, when you will and as you will, only without shame and sin. Through your only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That's not, we, I'm departing from what we would typically do. That's not the collect for the Feast of All Saints. That's a, a collect from the Liturgy of St. James, the same St. James of Jerusalem. Uh, but I think that's a very fitting prayer, and I almost like it better than the collect for today. And it ties so well with everything that we have been doing in here and continue to do. So uh, let's look at the verse of the week, Luke 12, 15. Let's speak this together. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Take heed. What does it mean to take heed? It's, no, it's not exactly beware. There's a, because there's a reason that beware is separate. Take heed is what? Yeah, pay attention. Hey, heads up. Or you can say, look out. <laughs> yeah, below. Look out for, okay? Uh, and beware then is what? If I say beware of cliff, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're just not the kind of right I want you to be, because I want you to I want you to notice a difference between taking heed, which would be paying attention for. If I tell you go out for a hike on this trail, but take heed because there are snakes around then when you go for your walk, you will be taking heed and making sure that you're looking out so you don't stumble into snakes. But if I tell you, beware of that snake den right there, I'm not saying look out because something might happen and be active. I'm saying here's the danger right here, beware of it, which is to say avoid it. Beware, avoid, or yeah, or be cautious around. Why? Yes, because it's dangerous. Yes, it's it's more imminent danger. You're on the trail right now. If you go right next to where the trail is, that is a snake den. The danger is imminent. Beware of that snake then. Don't walk into it. Stay where I put you on the path and keep walking. And the rest of the way, take heed because you may find a snake or two on the trail. But you may not, but you won't know unless you're paying attention. So don't go for... I remember when the, you know, that game Pokemon Go came out on everybody's phones and there were all kinds of news reports about people getting hit by traffic because they were on their phones just walking right into the street. That's what this is. You're not going to find the danger if you're not paying attention and looking out for it. To take heed and to be aware are all active. 
which means that as you are living your Christian life, there are things that you must do. This is, these are some of them. One, there is imminent danger. When you encounter that danger, you should avoid it. Don't touch it. Get away from it because it's bad for you. It's dangerous for you. It will hurt you. But also, as you live your life, take heed. Be on the lookout. Watch out. Be aware of, of your surroundings, of what's happening around you. Don't ever be lulled into a false sense of security, but always be vigilant, which actually is what the Christian is commanded to do. St. Paul says, be vigilant, sober-minded. Okay? What are we to beware of? Covetousness. What is covetousness? Yes, and to want something that somebody else has and that you don't have. To covet is to want something that is another person's. Why do you want it? Because you don't have it. Yeah, like a Ford Bronco. I think I, I think I told this story. There was, I, was at the, I came to the grocery store, and there was this, this Ford Bronco, and it's, it's the, an old one. I don't know who it is. Uh, I see it driving around town all the time, and it's like, a, I don't know, maybe an 87. So not precisely the vintage that I would look for, but close enough. And it's in pristine condition. It's got just the perfect little suspension lift, just the perfect size tires, just everything about it is perfect. And I look at that thing and I go, it's like the Lord ripped it right out of my mind and gave it to somebody else. <laughs> and I saw, I saw the fellow who owned it. I don't know who it is, but it's an older gentleman. And I thought to myself, well, isn't that just the way it goes? It's pristine, pristine. I know he's not out there hitting the trails in his Bronco. I can tell by the condition it's in, for one. And I, I just, yes, coveting what I don't have, but what another has. Which is to say, what do you feel or what do you think about what you have, about what the Lord has given you? It is. It's not enough and it's not good enough. The quality is not good enough. You know, that's the kind of coveting where I've got my iPhone whatever. I, hell would freeze over, by the way, before I bought an iPhone. I'm an Android man. <laughs> so I've got my iPhone whatever, 6S, I don't know. But this person has his iPhone 15 X supercharged whatever, I don't know. Okay. And, I and I want that newer model. Well, does the model you have work? Well, yeah, it does everything that it's supposed to. It's reliable. It makes calls. It texts everything. There's no problems with it. Well, then what's the deal? Why do you want that one? Because that one's the new one. It has all these extra features. But why? See, so that's coveting because the quality of what you have is, to your mind, not good enough. You, have, you both have something, and it works for both of you, but you want something that's better. Or coveting the very thing that you don't have. I have a flip phone and I want an iPhone supercharged 15 whatever. I don't know why you would. If you've got a flip phone, stay with it. God bless you if you still have a flip phone because you are, that's what a saint looks like in the modern day. Yeah, there you go, Bill. Okay. Uh, good, good. Look at all of you, see? I'm so spoiled serving such a congregation of saints. <laughs> okay. So coveting the thing that you don't that you don't have. I, I know a fellow that he had a flip phone and somebody said, Can I text you? And he says, If you write it down on a sticky note, I can put it in my phone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of that stuff's so overrated and overused. Okay, so beware of covetousness. Covetous is wishing you had what you don't have because you aren't content. Here's that word again, contentedness. Because you aren't content with what you do have. So you're supposed to beware of that because you're called to be content with what the Lord gives you. 
Why? For one's life, this is important, one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. Uh, why his life? Stuff, stuff is death. I'm not saying don't have stuff, okay? The Lord will give you things, and that's fine. What I mean to, when I say that stuff is death is if you put your trust in that stuff, if you desire more stuff, if the focus of your life is stuff and how do I get more and better and then being angry when you don't have more or better and coveting the person that does have more or better, that's, that's where it becomes death for you. So take heed of that and beware because covetousness is the very love of stuff that will bring you to death. It will bring you to ruin. Why? Because your life is not from those things. Your life doesn't consist in the abundance of things you possess. Where does it come from instead? Christ. Yeah, from, from the Lord, what he does for you, Christ, the gifts that he gives you. That's where your life comes from, not in any of the things that you have. That's why you can be the richest saint on earth having nothing. And you're better off, in fact, than the guy who lives in a multi-million dollar home who can uh, buy anything he wants whenever he wants, but who is so focused on everything that he has and protecting it and mising it and, uh, and uh, I don't know, you know uh, getting more and better. The money isn't the thing that's going to help him. Yeah, you might have a more comfortable life here, but you were never called to live a comfortable life anyway. You were called to live a life of faith. A life of faith and a life of comfort are two uh, exclusive things, mutually exclusive things. All right, let's speak this again. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. What is the ninth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. Uh, what is meant by your neighbor's house? And to help answer that question, notice that in Luther's explanation of the uh, commandment, it's your neighbor's inheritance or house, not just your neighbor's house. So we're different, uh, while you think of that, we're different than the Reformed in how we number the Ten Commandments, which makes it difficult for me sometimes because I learned them first the Reformed way, so then I have, to, I have to really think about it. The Reformed way simply has the Tenth Commandment as you shall not covet, the end. We divide it, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, land, animals, possessions, or uh, 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 servants, whatever. What, what is meant by house? Stuff. Yeah, exactly. So that's why you can say coveting your neighbor's house includes possession or inherit, excuse me, inheritance and house. It's your material, excuse me, material goods. Your material goods, your possessions, the abundance of things that you possess. Those are the things that the Lord seeks to safeguard with the ninth commandment, again, because it's okay for you to have things, but it's not okay for you to not be content with the things that you have and to look at somebody else and covet what they have. So the ninth commandment, coveting your neighbor's house, deals with material goods. The um, tenth is with other kinds of goods. Okay, kids, you can depart. <clears throat> Here's the funny thing, by the way, about the difference between our numbering of the Ten Commandments and the Reformed numbering. The Reformed double up just like we do. So the Reformed look at how we divide the commandments and they say, you guys are silly for dividing the commandments up that way because coveting your neighbor's house and coveting your neighbor's wife, land, animals, children, whatever, all of that is still coveting. And then they say, 
you shall have no other gods, and you shall worship no other gods. And we say, what's the difference between having a god and worshiping a god? It's the same thing. So we just kind of butt our heads together and go, yours are the same, no, yours are the same. And uh, each of us can explain what the differences are. Now here's the, here's the really, really important question of the day though. Whose numbering of the Ten Commandments is the right one? This is a trick, but not in the way that you think. Okay, yes, good. There aren't numbers. The, 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 the Hebrew of the text of the Ten Commandments, when they're given, does not say, here are the things. The first commandment is this. The second, you know, it's not laid out in the Hebrew like it is in the catechism. What is the first commandment? So there's, there's key number one. The division of the commandments is not given numerically. Here's the other thing. This just makes everybody angry. The, there is no clear cut division in the Hebrew text between the two, you know, ninth and tenth as coveting or first and second as worshiping and having a God. So who is right? Both of us. Because <laughs> the Hebrew text is ambiguous. So who's right? Well, we, we both are. Who's wrong? Neither of us. Because to covet does include differences in coveting, which is how we would look at the ninth and 10th commandments, breaking them apart into the specifics of the type of coveting, but likewise, there is no difference in having, between having a God and worshiping a God. You can't have a God and not worship, and you can't worship and not have a God. It, they're the same thing. Uh, so we simply keep them together. The Reformed take them apart and talk about the specifics of the two. Who's right? Both. Who's wrong? None. Both of them, both of them are right, uh, especially according to the slightly ambiguous nature of the Hebrew text. So there's a fun little tidbit for you. My, I, my mother always talks about how uh, it's very difficult for her with the Ten Commandments because somebody said, well, what's the Fifth Commandment? And she'll have to stop and go, um, honor thy father. No, wait a minute. Uh, oh, right, right, you shall not murder. Because the, the numbering is one off. And I, I'll tell you, when you learn, you all know this, when you have learned something a, a specific way, it's very difficult to learn it another way which is why people shouldn't mess around with the liturgy and change the language uh, or change the language of the hymns or change the language of the catechism. Stuff should stay the same. Uh, or the creed. By the way, I try to learn the old, I, I know the old language of the Apostles' Creed and I try and speak it that way when I'm doing shut-in visits because most of the people I'm visiting know it the old way. And then I come and I do I pray in my home with my family or I pray on my own and I find myself being confused because I can't remember which word I'm supposed to say, uh, which is all the more reason for you to just have, have, one, have one that you know and that you know really well and just stick to it. And guess what? I'm going to tell you something. When we sing a hymn like... Uh, bum, 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 bum. Yeah, Lord, keep us steadfast. Oof, that was embarrassing. Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word. You just sing it the way you know it. And if I hear people saying different words, I'm not going to say anything. It's not like I'm going to jump up and say, Get, Step in line, you! Say it the way you know it. Uh, who feign by craft and sword. That's how I sing it. So, you know, we'll all be together. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Do it. Don't, don't try to learn it a new way and then you know, be confused about the way to do it. Just learn it one way and have it down really, really, really well. That's the best way to do things, okay? Pastor, speaking of changing the liturgy. Yes. I have to say the ones that are coming to Matins on, in the morning, yes. they do the different uh, yes. whatever. They're doing a wonderful job. Yes, <laughs> yes they are. 
See, the funny thing about this daily matins business too, then we'll, we'll hit what we we're gonna talk about today. Um, funny thing about the daily matins thing is, that's a change, yes, but that's not actually an alteration. Uh, what is in the hymnal is an alteration. That's something new. Uh, using old things but making it new, and that's not actually how it was. In fact, even TLH, um, is, they were modifications made to TLH too, from earlier hymnals to get it to this set form. Which, so what we do in daily matins, and that's, TLH changed it because people stopped praying every day. Over the, over the decades, you see a decrease in people who are actually praying every day. And for better or for worse, the church's response to that is to meet people where they are. Instead of telling people what they should be doing and helping them to improve the areas of their life where they are not doing perhaps uh, as well as they ought to be, they just choose to meet people where they are. So they say, well, you're not, you're not praying every day. You're not, or the church isn't having a service every day anymore like they used to. So we'll keep the service because people like the service, but we'll make it so that it's the way that it would be used if you were only doing it on a Sunday morning before divine service. Because that's, by the way, what matins used to be. TLH matins is matins for service before divine service. So you would come to church at like 7 o'clock, do matins, go to Sunday school, and then come back to church for the second service, which was divine service, where you would actually get the sacrament. That's where the Easter sunrise service comes from traditionally, because what that used to be was come to church really early, we'll pray matins or have another morning office, then we'll all get together, we'll break the fast together, and then we'll come back and go to church for the real service, which is why the 1030 service is still called the chief service, uh, because that was the service where you got the sacrament and everything. That's why the hymns are different, the propers are different, the, re the, the sermon is different. Um, so that's kind of where that comes from. Now, TLH is better than the LSB here because the TLH at least said, if you still do want to pray matins every day, here are the different canticles that would, you would use for all the different days of the week. And it's all the ones that we're doing, except TLH just gave you the text and no tune. So actually, the canticles that are in the daily office book come from a couple places, but primarily two books, the Lutheran Hymnal of 1913 and the Lutheran Hymnal of 1888. So it is a change having all of the canticles, but it's a change in that it's stepping back to what the church used to always do and seeing the, the tones that the church always used to do, which I'm always a fan of going back to the things that the church had done that weren't broken and somehow were disregarded even though they were still great and new and worked. But I do agree, people are picking up on them very quickly and that's great. They're really, they're really nice tunes and nice texts. If you haven't at least looked at the canticles, the text of the canticles, they're great canticles just you know, to look through. And it's giving you more scripture actually too because all of the canticles come from either canonical books of the church or from scripture. And I think there's only one that is just a canonical book, which is from the Apocrypha, and that's, that's the one that we would be singing during Lent, which is the prayer of Manasseh. Otherwise, everything else is just scripture, but it's scripture that you might not otherwise be familiar with, and then you start getting deeper into these texts, these canticles that are given to you right from the Bible. Now, Today would be a hymn day, so I want to talk a little bit about the new hymn for the month, uh, but I also really want to get done with what I started last week uh, because I'd like to kind of move forward in this, and we tend, I, this is, and it's all my fault, it's nobody else's fault, tend to sort of get into something and then sink in really deep, and then it takes us a while to get out of it. So I'd like to gun the engine a little bit and get out of this mud puddle to a new one. Uh, so, here's the, this is the hymn. I think we've maybe looked at this before. There's not a lot to say um, about history here because, as you can see, uh, this is a relatively new hymn in that I wrote it and my brother composed it. Um, 
I'm gonna, I want us to do this hymn for a few reasons. Not, not any of them are um, from ego or from vanity. Uh, I'd, I'd like for, you know, okay, let me, let me back up. I want you to know that anybody can write a hymn. Anybody can write a hymn. A farmer in Mound City, Missouri can sit down and write a hymn. Writing hymns is not hard. The only requirement for writing hymnody is that you're a faithful Christian. If you're a faithful Christian, you can write hymnody. This is an example of that. I'm no poet or a scholar, but I can sit down and write a hymn. And you can too. So I, I want us to see this, that it is possible for you to sit down and write a hymn. And if you feel so moved, and, and if you put together something with a meter and rhyme, and you put it together, and you write a hymn, thanks be to God, do it. And if you ever feel so inclined, do it. It's a really kind of a neat activity to write a hymn. Now, the history of this hymn was uh, my grandpa died and my brother and I, on the day of his funeral, got together and said, wouldn't it be nice if, as a Christmas present to the family, we composed a hymn? Which is what we did. We worked that in, that, the rest of that year to, to uh, compose this hymn. Uh, this is the second point, then, that I want to make. Hymnody is never for an individual or for a group of individuals. So when we wrote this, while we wrote it to give it away as a present that year, the point was never that it was only ever going to be a gift for certain people. You know, we, we printed it out and we kept, they had little cards at the funeral and we kept those and we, my brother did all of that work, uh, picking out the mats and cutting the mats and putting these things in, and then we framed them and gave. I mean, so that's fine, uh, but a hymn is never designed to be under glass. It's always designed to be in the mouth of the church. So this ultimately was something that we did not just for our family, but for the church, the church at large. Now, this is a pet peeve of mine um, with the modern church. I, I think I think the beginning of the death of American Christianity was taking copyright into the church. And of course, I understand that a worker is worthy of his wages, but if you're writing a hymn for the church to copyright it and then charge the church money for them to use the hymn that you wrote for the church means you're not writing the hymn for the church. You're writing it for you. The, the hymnody of the church is always given as gift to the church, or it always must be given as gift to the church, for the church to use freely. That's why sermons aren't copyrighted either, by the way, and you can't plagiarize a sermon because a sermon is given for the use of the whole church, which means if I really wanted to, and I don't because I think it's lazy, but if I really wanted to, I could go online to pastors that I really like who post their sermons online for people in their congregations to read, or I could go to a podcast like the one we put out, and I could listen to a sermon and transcribe it and then just preach that sermon on Sunday morning instead of the sermon that I could have spent time and energy writing myself. I could do that, and it wouldn't be plagiarism. Ten pastors across the country could, could preach exactly the same sermon word for word that they took from somebody else, and it's not plagiarism because a sermon is something that's given to the church. Hymnody used to be that same way, given to the church for the church to use. So this hymn is one that is given to the church to use, and there are elements in the text of this hymn that my brother and I both thought were very important because there was not a lot of hymnody that addressed some of the issues that we wanted to address. So we did it uh, and then gave it as a gift to the church. So a few little fun Easter egg type things for you to note. When you write a hymn, you must always pick a meter 
because hymn is match, I mean, you should pick a meter. You can look through the hymn, hymnal, and the, the back of the hymnal, you can search for hymns by name of author, by title of the hymn, by title of the tune, and you can search for them by meter. And you'll find that the, there are a lot of them that are either unmetered or irregular meter. <laughs> irregular is my favorite. But it's best to have a meter because a meter makes things easier to sing. And honestly, it makes it easier for you if you ever choose to write a hymn to fit the text into the meter. The other important thing is to write the text before you write the tune or pick a tune. If you're writing text to fit a tune, then you're not actually writing good text. You're shoehorning. And what should be happening is that you should be writing text that's going to be good text all by itself. And then a tune is picked or written, composed, to be the setting of your text. The text is the jewel, the tune is the setting, which is difficult for me to say as a musician, because often I, as an individual, get caught up in the setting and lose the text, because the music is so beautiful to listen to that then you forget about the text that you're speaking or singing. Okay? This is why I implore you, especially you men, to sing the hymns. If you want your children to sing the hymns, you must do it. It doesn't matter if mom sings them. If the dad doesn't sing, the kids won't, especially the boys. And then the boys are going to grow up, and they're not going to sing. And then they're going to raise kids, and none of their kids are going to sing because dad doesn't sing. Father must sing too. And so that's my you know, number one plea to you. If you don't sing, if any of you don't sing, for whatever reason, if you feel like you can't sing or whatever, at least follow along with the text. Because the thing that is really important is the text. And if you're just going to say, well, it's a hymn, I'll put the book down and I'll just sit there while everybody else sings, you're doing not only yourself a disservice, but if you have a family, your entire family, you're doing a disservice. One, because you are not getting the benefit of the text of that hymnody. And two, because the example that you are setting is one that then becomes slightly problematic. Kids will do what their parents do. If their parents don't sing, the kids don't sing. You know, Norman Nagel, late professor at the seminary, said, people were t saying, well, we should change the liturgy because people think the liturgy is boring. And any pastor, any theologian should be wary if, if folks say, some people say, some people say the liturgy's boring, pastor. Then you say, what people? I can't help some people. I'm called to deal with specific people. If some people think that the liturgy is boring, some people should come and talk to me. And then I can help them, whoever they are. But if it's just some people, then hard cases make bad law. I'm not going to change the entire liturgy because some unnamed group of nebulous individuals thought that something was boring. But anyway, Norman Nagel said, yes, some people think that the liturgy is boring, and some people think that children think the liturgy is boring. And yes, children do think the liturgy is boring, if their parents think that it's boring. Because kids do what their parents do. So if the parents just stand up there and don't, don't do anything, or if they screw around during the service, then the kids are going to do that too, and the kids are going to grow up doing that. And then you're going to be a grandparent who sits there looking at your grandchildren, wondering, why don't my grandchildren behave in church, and why aren't my children getting on them, you know, to have them behave in church, and it's because they had an example growing up. We've all seen it. We all know it. Now, here are some of the things about this hymn, okay? The meter. This is an irregular meter. I wrote the text. It's an irregular meter. I like irregular meter. But you can look down here and see the meter, 65777. This is the kind of thing that you can do. You have the liberty to do it. My, grandpa, my grandpa's birthday was uh, November 21st. That's the meter. Six and five is 11. Seven, seven, seven is 21. So the meter is the birthday. Um, this is also why you write the text before the tune, because there aren't any tunes with this kind of meter. And also, I gave the text to my brother, and he said, quote, 
what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> now, every tune must have a name. Um, it helps to catalog, and it's just important to, for a tune to have a name. My grandpa is Norwegian. The tune name is Standhaftig, which is Norwegian for steadfast. Okay? So in the composition of the text and of the tune, you already have a recognition of the Christian life. Not the Christian life of an individual, per se, but the Christian life lived faithfully. This is a hymn for all saints. This is another reason why I want us to look at it and have it under our, our belts this month as the hymn of the month, because next year for all saints, I like to bring in some special music for all saints. We're gonna have this hymn be one of the ones that we sing. So then everybody kind of knows it. So there are a couple things in the text that I would like to point out just for you to pay attention to. So the fourth stanza um, is, is an important stanza. Why? Because how many, how many Christian hymns do you look at that speak about the, rea the harsh realities of what is now becoming so common in this day and age, which is that in one way or another, even the Christian, steadfast Christian saints lose their mind. And what do you say about the faith of a Christian when they are unable to confess the reality of their faith or, frankly, to form any kind of coherent thought or sentence? Because I'll tell you what the temptation is. And I know it's the temptation because Nine out, of ten, nine out of ten pastors that I have talked to have said this. You don't give them the sacraments. You just kind of go and you chat at them. And uh, you just kind of, they're just done. They're, in a sense, excommunicated. They're cut off from the body of Christ. Why? Because Lutherans think that in order to have the sacrament, you have to use your mouth to make an intellectual confession. And if you can't make an intellectual confession, then you don't get the sacrament. That's a problem. And what kind of comfort is it for you if your father or grandfather is in the grasp of dementia and pastor comes and you so desperately want pastor to give them last rites or to give them the sacrament in the nursing home and he says, well, you know, I can't do anything with them. How does that make you feel? I can't do anything with them. And there, I use that language because that is a direct quote that a pastor said to me about one of my parishioners. I can't do anything with them. So you shouldn't either. And I say, to hell with that. Literally, to hell with that. Because that's a mindset of the devil. I'm, your people are not cut off simply because they cannot think or speak. What do you do with a, here's a great example, what do you do with a, a deaf child? Can't speak, cut off. Can't make confession, cut off. What do you do with the autistic child? Well, I can't do a thing with him, cut off. See what happens when you follow that logic to its natural conclusion? Doesn't work. So the hymnody here is designed to answer the question, what happens to people whose minds have fallen away? That's the fourth stanza. Memories fade and bodies weaken. It's a, it's a heartbreaking thing to lose somebody to dementia or Alzheimer's. I mean, it's a hard enough thing to lose somebody once, but when you, when you lose somebody to uh, uh, you know, a, a disease like that, to Alzheimer's or or to some form of dementia, and there are many, you lose them twice because you watch them before your eyes lose every sense of who they are and who you are. And you know, if it's a spouse, the entire relationship that you have had is now gone from them. And that means it's gone from you too. I mean, you're married to them and you, you stay steadfast to them and all of that, but they don't know who you are. They don't, they don't know that they were ever married. 
I mean, that gets a, to be a very difficult thing. So you lose them once before they die. You lose your, you lose your beloved two times. Even though your minds fade, even though your bodies weaken, everybody will see the faith on that last day, even of those who could not confess it. And that's an important thing for you to know because faith is not an intellectual thing. Faith does not live here. It lives here. That's important to know. Uh, so that's, that's one of the really important things about this particular stanza here that I just want you to be aware of. Now, I'm going to just sing this first stanza. We'll sing it together, and then we'll jump into this last section here. The choir sings today, so I'm trying to be, very, uh, I'm trying to be better about my use of time here. Yes. It's a birth birth year. Your birth year? Yeah, mine is 19 Yeah, if you want to feel old. I was born in 1991. Okay. My brother was born in 1993. What makes me feel old is meeting kids that were born after the year 2000. Or or kids that were not alive uh, when 9/11 happened. Because I, I was alive, I remember where I was, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on, I was still too young, but I, I can tell you right now where I was, I can tell you, it was, we were at the, the Dean Clinic on Fish Hatchery Road, seeing Doc, Dr. Torstenson, and I was frustrated while, we, while I played with my siblings in the play castle, because this doctor's appointment was taking a really long time, because everyone was just coming out watching the news. And then we went to the mall, because we needed new shoes, so we went to Rogan's Shoes, <laughs> and everyone was just standing around and I remember wondering why is everybody just standing around hey? so it makes me feel old when I, yeah I was born so and so like 2008 I was born in 2008 and you go Ugh! good grief you don't know what a cassette player is or a VCR or a rotary or a, or, or a corded phone if you ask one of the utes to use their hand and pretend they're talking on the phone, most of us here know what we would do. We would go like this. Hey, kids don't even know what that is anymore. They go like this. <laughs> or like this. <laughs> what a world, what a world. Yeah, so most hymnody, my brother actually, my brother was the one that formatted this whole document here. And he did it to, to look like how they're formatted in the hymnal. So if you look at what the hymnal looks like down here, it'll always have the years, the dates of the, the, whoever wrote the text and whoever wrote the tune. So that's what the B is. Because we're still alive. Okay. So if, you're, if, we, if one of us had died, then you would put 1993 to whatever. But because we're still alive, then you just put B for born 1991, which means they were born here and are still alive, meaning it's current, okay? Um, let me sing this first stanza, and we'll just, we'll just, this is a really short one, so we'll sing the whole thing. Now may I rest secure, my race completed, Abram's bosom be my bed, where I wait and lay my head, till to Christ my bridegroom wed. O Christ my Lord, my God, with faith undoubting, May to thee I ever cleave, doubting not with faith believe, thee thy children never leave. Thou art my robe, my dress, my glorious raiment, who could ever grant in life 
walking through this vale of strife, any greater soul's delight. Though memories fade away and bodies weaken, on the last day all will see Loved ones always they shall be Who in life were close to me While freely now they flow In pain of mourning Tears are wiped away within Heaven's kingdom free from sin Where we dwell forever with him Though now we sow in tears We shall be blessed Reaping sheaves of joy most fair While with humble reverence there Kneel before the Lamb's high chair. Any questions about the hymn, the text, anything? Writing a hymn before we jump into Wisdom of Solomon. What year did I write that? Ah, that was two years ago. Two years ago. Or three. Two, I think. Yeah, and then... uh, then my home congregation actually, somehow the pastor there found it and they actually sung it at their service the next year. And uh, so actually, you know, this is one of those things where somehow people find out about it even though it was never shared. But that's fine because that's the way the church is supposed to be. The hymnody is for the whole church to use. Um, like the liturgy, by the way, like the liturgy. This is why no pastor should ever mess with the liturgy because it's not his to work with. It's not the congregations to work with. It's the whole churches. So you don't actually have liberty to go and change things because it isn't yours. It belongs to everybody. So if everybody got together and said, we're going to change it, then that would be one thing. But one Joe Sixpack down at Holy Sixpack Lutheran Church uh, saying, you know what, I don't like this. There's meaning to Holy Sixpack, by the way. I did that on purpose for you Lutherans. Uh, so he says, okay, uh, you know, I don't like this part. I'm going to change this. He can do it, and then his congregation will follow along, and they'll do whatever he puts in the bulletin or whatever creative, cutesy thing that he wants to do. The problem is you're actually not being the church if you do that. You're being an individual congregation, and that's called being a sect. So the church is supposed to seek unity, and one of the ways that we have unity is in our worship. If you're going and changing that willy-nilly, you're creating an independent little sect in your own congregation. And the church is not called to be a bunch of collective individual congregations. It is called to be one uh, giant community in Christ with commonality. Okay? All right. If you want to be a good Christian... What you should do is go downstairs to the St. Jerome Library and check out a book of the collected sermons of the Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. We have the whole series down there. The reason I say that is because of one sermon in particular. Charles Spurgeon writes an incredible, incredible sermon that I actually thought about just flat out reading to you for Bible class today, but... I didn't want to do that after all. Uh, But it's about the commonalities between you living your life in this veil of tears and heaven. What you have and what you experience of heaven now 
even though you aren't there, which frankly is a beautiful sermon to read for this particular feast day, uh, All Saints, as it is observed, because every single one of us mourns on the, this is a very difficult day uh, for everybody. And it's difficult for that reason, because you're acknowledging the fact that you have loved ones that are not with you anymore, but you're still united in being with the Lord. Now, this, this sermon is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I took it to uh, Lincoln the last time I went there to visit um, Pastor Lucas from the Methodist Church, and I just read him that sermon and cried in his hospital room, just reading the words of this Baptist preacher. Theologians ought to be well-rounded, and Spurgeon is really good. You should read him. Not everything he writes is something we agree with, but even when he writes something we would disagree with, he writes it really well. Great preacher. Now, Wisdom of Solomon. I'm going to go, go back a little bit, rewind the end of chapter 2. Remember, this is an apocryphal book, but Solomon did write it. It's important. This is also where one of the really big passages where the idea of purgatory is pulled from in the Roman Catholic Church, and frankly, which we use in the Lutheran Church as well, just with a slightly different interpretation. The end of chapter 2. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that are of his side do find it. Uh, this is important for a couple reasons. One, when God creates man, he does not create them to be uh, temporary. And we wouldn't say that even in death people are temporary, but what I mean by that is that you're here, you're in creation, and then you die, and you're done. You're not in creation. You don't live. You don't go to Paula's or to McDonald's or to St. Joe to the Walmart or whatever. You just, you don't do, you're not out in the fields anymore. And you're out in a field, just not out in your own, okay? Uh, that was never the intent. God intends you to be eternal. This is also important. God has made man to be an image of his own eternity. Image and likeness means so much more than what you're maybe taught you know, in Sunday school, which is fair because you only have so much time in Sunday school and typically when you're in Sunday school, you're not of the intellectual level to really start to grasp what image and likeness mean. But you're intended for eternity, which is part of the command, be fruitful and multiply, which really doesn't mean go have a bunch of kids and fill up the earth. It really means grow up, mature. Grow and mature in your relationship with one another, which includes bearing children, a husband and wife that grow and mature in their relationship with one another, mature through the act of having children and rearing children. So that's an aspect of it, but not the only aspect of it. And he says, this tree here, this is, this is the big one. Why does God put a tree in the garden and then tell man, don't eat that tree? It seems kind of silly, doesn't it? It's okay to say yes. <laughs> no, no, really. Don't, don't be afraid that, you know, oh, if I say that something God did sounds silly, I'm going to get lightning bolted. Look, I'm still around. Okay? It's okay to say it sounds a little silly because it does sound a little silly. And the reason why it sounds a little silly is because that's not what God does. God doesn't just plant a tree and say, all right, this tree's here. Don't you eat it. Mm -mm -mm. You know, like putting a pie on the windowsill in front of a bunch of hungry children saying, I'm going to leave this pie right here, but don't you eat it. Like, well, what's the point of that? You're just tempting people now. You know, it's like... Uh, don't think about Ford Broncos. And then you immediately think of Ford Broncos. That's just a temptation. Okay? And God doesn't tempt. Why does God create the trees? He has purpose behind everything. Here's what you need to realize. Man is intended to eat from that tree. Just not yet. You need to grow and you need to mature 
You need to grow up a little bit in your relationship with one another, in your faith and in your love toward me, in our relationship. And when you have grown up and matured, then you will be ready for this. And all of this I'm doing for you so that you can finally partake of what eternity really is. And then they say, well, no, I want to do it now. And they weren't ready for it. Now they're underbaked. And now there's a problem. And all of that could have been avoided if they had listened to God and just simply matured and waited for the proper time. But that is to say, you are intended for eternity, which is why now in Christ, what is your telos, your, your, your fulfillment? It is eternity, life in eternity. Because that's what you were always made for. You were never made to die, but now you do die. But now, even despite death, you are still redeemed, which means you're still made for eternity and can still grasp and get that eternity. You tracking with me? Does that make sense? Okay. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise, they seemed to die, and their departure is taken for misery. See that? We talked about this last week. They seemed to die. That's the whole Christian funeral. They seemed to die. But the cat's out of the bag, folks, because they didn't really. No, we're all, we'll be sad because we want them to stay with us. But they're not really gone. Not gone, gone. No, they're not really dead. They're just sleeping. Now, the pagan comes to the funeral and weeps and mourns and laments because, well, they're gone. They're dead. They'll never come back. Ah! They have no hope, which is why they say, well, you know, turn me into a tree or crush me into a diamond and wear me on your ring. You know, well, because now you're dead, doesn't matter now. Nothing's going to happen. You're just dead and gone. Which not only devalues your death, it devalues your life, and it devalues your personhood. But you don't die. You just seemed to die. And they're going from us to be utter destruction, but they are in peace. For though they be punished in the sight of man, yet is their hope full of immortality. See, what is your punishment in the sight of man? Though they death. Men look at you and they see that you die. They say, well, that's punishment. And the conclusion is you were punished and you were punished with death and therefore there's no hope for you. That's actually <laughs> the complete opposite. Sure, you, death is the punishment uh, of sin. That's the consequence of sin. It's unavoidable. It's just how it is. Not what it was supposed to be, but how it is now. But your hope is full of immortality. Death is not your hope. The resurrection is your hope. But how do you get to the resurrection if you don't die? Uh, there's George MacDonald uh, wrote, how can, they, how can they be awakened who first have not slept? You see that? How can they be awakened who first have not slept? Everybody's got to go to sleep. Why do you go to sleep? So that you can wake up. You don't go to sleep because you want to go to sleep. You go to sleep because you want to wake up. I want to wake up on the new day. I don't want to stay awake through this dark, grisly night. I want to go to sleep and I want to wake up on the new, bright, shining day with the sun coming through the windows. That's the whole thing. I want to go to sleep in death because I'm going to wake up in the resurrection. That's what I really want. And having been a little chastised, they shall be greatly rewarded. Now that's purgatory, is what they would say. Having been a little chastised. And we would say, yeah, okay, a little chastised, that's fine. We already know that there is a purgation where the good stuff in you is refined and made better and the bad stuff in you is just purged away. Okay, that's fine. That's a question of interpretation. For God proved them and found them worthy for himself. As gold in the furnace hath he tried them and received them as a burnt offering. And in the time of their visitation, they shall shine and run to and fro like sparks among the stubble. Now, tell me that that is not beautiful. They shall shine and they shall run to and fro like sparks among the stubble. Beautiful. It's a foretaste. You just get a little bit of a picture of what it's going to be. They shall judge the nations and have dominion over the people and their Lord shall reign forever. They that put their trust in him shall understand the truth. You don't understand the truth now, but someday you will. Now you trust and you hope with faith. Someday you will actually understand. Someday there will not be any mysteries to you. Let me finish this up here and then we're going to be done. 
And such as be faithful in love shall abide with him, for grace and mercy is to his saints, and he hath care for his elect. Okay? There. Questions about Wisdom of Solomon. You should just read the whole book. It's, it's beautiful. Okay, choir? Yes. Oh, the intro it. Right, there was, so this is sort of a weird week. Things didn't make it into the bulletin. Note a couple things. The hymn of the day is on an insert. It's from the TLH. The choir is singing the intro it. They'll be chanting that. The congregation has a verse there too in the intro it. Your bold verse is the one you get to chant. Don't worry, you'll hear the choir doing it and they'll do it with you. No biggie. Um, yeah, and on the back here, choir is not at 1 o'clock on Tuesday. It is at 6 o'clock like usual. Okay, choir, let's head to the sanctuary.